0: We start a new series, The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope. The title this morning is Full Assurance of Hope to the End. I have one, two, three, four texts that I want to read. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. And we desire, I'm a little bit croaky, but I don't have a sore throat. I'm just, so just pretend I sound decent. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, that's a great word, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Next text, Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. There it is again, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Next text. Hebrews 11.1, sorry. Faith is the assurance of things. Here it is. Hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. The last text. Romans 8. Sorry, 4. 18 to 22. Speaking of Abraham in hope. He believed against hope. That's interesting. That he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told. So shall their offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. That's a nice way to say it, isn't it? Since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave the glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Four really big texts on the subject of hope and its relation to assurance and confidence and faith and holiness. Guide us through this whole series to be true to your word, relevant to our lives, and pleasing to the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice that wonderful phrase from Hebrews 6 that forms the title of this teaching, 611, Full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance of hope until the end. It's interesting because most of the time we don't think of words like assurance and hope as partners. We think of them more as opposites. We use the word hope to express this idea of a longing or a desire rather than a certainty. Words matter when you study the Bible, so the first thing I want to do is establish exactly what we mean when we use that word hope. We use it, I think, in about three different ways, and I want to see which one of them ties in with what the Bible is doing with that word. We use the word hope as the desire for something good in the future. Maybe that's the most common usage. So the little boy says, I hope Daddy gets home from work early so we can shoot some hoops in the driveway. So in other words, the child has this desire for the future, that his dad will come home early tonight so that something good will happen. We can can shoot some baskets. Second, hope is also used the good thing we are desiring in the future, the object itself. And so parents say our hope is that our son Jim will arrive safely this morning from Africa. In other words, Jim's safe arrival is the object of their hope. Third, hope is also used to describe the reason or the means by which something good can come to pass. How many times I've been out golfing and I'm anxious to break 40 on the back nine. Golf is a lot like life in that things don't always work out the way you'd like. I can't tell you the number of times I've stood on the last tee on the 18th hole and said to somebody, my only hope for breaking 40 is I've got to get a three on this last par five. And, and, and my hope, some would call it a dream, <clears throat> is my hope is for that magical three. The, the hope is the means of the goal of breaking 40. So those, I think, are just the most common ways we use the word hope in everyday conversation. Nothing wrong with any of them. Each of those is used at one time or another in the scriptures. That's true. And each one is perfectly correct as far as English usage goes. But but here's the important point to remember this morning. The most important feature of biblical hope isn't present in any of those common uses. And in fact, the distinctive feature of biblical hope is almost the opposite of each one of those things. Let me just try and explain that. In each of those examples I just gave, three of them. The use of the word hope expresses some measure of uncertainty rather than certainty. The little boy hopes daddy will come home early from work. He's not sure that he will. It's the parents hope that Jim will arrive safely from Africa. They aren't absolutely positive of that. And my only hope for a below 40 score on the back nine is an eagle three on the last par five. In each of those cases, especially the last, hope is expressing a desire rather than a certainty. So, so in other words, we usually use the word hope to mean my fingers are crossed. And there's nothing wrong with using hope in that way in much of our everyday living. We all hope for desire wish for certain good things in our future that's all right just so long as we don't carry that meaning that thinking of the word hope just so long as we don't carry it over to the new testament because it doesn't work there a biblical definition of hope would be different a biblical definition of hope would be this is my definition a constant expectation of the good Father God has for us in the future based on the certainty of his character and promise. So, so biblical hope not only desires the good for the future, it expects it. It is confident in it. It is certain that it will come to pass. I know this isn't typically sermonic. Let me just take these introductory remarks a teeny bit further, okay? If biblical hope is certain hope, it raises questions. Here's what I want to know. If that's the case, if biblical hope is certain hope, one... Where does that certainty come from? That's a fair question, isn't it? Where does that certainty come from? I mean, what, what... Where does certainty come from generally? What makes us certain about anything? It's not a trick question. What makes us certain of things? Well, first, there are certain facts that just operate under visible laws and formulas you have two apples I give you two more unless we're playing some silly mind game you have four apples and only uh, an infant or a mentally unstable person would ever deny it we can all be certain of this because well because we can count the apples (laughs) It's a certainty based on simple math. We're positive. If you have two, I give you two more. How many do you have? You get four. Secondly, there are certain things that we know for certain because they follow just basic laws of logic. Now, we don't always think of all those steps through. It's a good thing we don't have to. But we all use those rules every day. All mortals die. Don Horbin is mortal. Don Horbin will die. We're all pretty certain of those kinds of logical truths. But there's a third kind of certainty that we don't consider very often, but we all practice it all the time. And it doesn't fit into either of those categories. We're all aware of a type of certainty that doesn't come from mathematical calculations or scientific laws or the laws of logic. There's a certain kind of certainty that comes from experience and relationship. But, it, but it's absolute certainty nonetheless. Let me, for example, and this does relate to the Bible, by the way. Let's say I come to you, and I say that tonight, tonight at 6.30, all the people in other religions, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, they're all at 6.30 tonight going to suddenly realize that Jesus Christ is God the Son, the only Redeemer, and they're all going to come to Christ. All of them, tonight, 6.30. And tonight at 6.30, all the sellers of smut and pornography on the Internet, they're all going to go out of business because people will suddenly learn to control all their lustful desires, starting tonight at 6.30. And starting tonight at 6.30, there will never be another dishonest, deceptive word spoken. Husbands will always be kind to their wives. All wars will end. There will be no more bloodshed. It's not the second coming. People are just going to suddenly see and realize the desperate wickedness on this planet, and they're all of them going to turn from all wrongdoing, and they're going to do it tonight at 6.30. How many would you believe me? Yeah, no takers. No, Pastor Don. I think everyone in this room Unless you were just being sort of a smart aleck, no way, Pastor Don. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. In fact, in fact, Pastor Don, and here it is, I am absolutely certain that that's not going to happen tonight at six thirty. And I would say to you, there's not a person in this room who could prove to me that it's not going to happen at six thirty. Could you? Could you prove it to me? You can't. You can't prove it. There's no way anybody in this room could prove to me 100% before 6.30. Nobody could prove that any of those statements were factually untrue. I mean, there's no mathematical law preventing that from happening, is there? You couldn't prove it's not going to happen, but we're all, myself, we're all positive it's not going to happen. Now, where does that kind of certainty come from? It's not mathematic. It's not, it's not just logic. It's not scientific. It all relates to the third kind of certainty that comes from experience and it comes from relationship. We, we know that that's not going to happen because we know what people are like, we're certain. We know it from our own hearts. We know it from watching the news. We know it from a thousand and one ways that we recognize and are aware of what's in the heart of mankind and so we're all certain that at 6.30 this prediction is untrue though we could never prove it before that. So now with all that in mind and we're well into it now, don't worry. I want to turn now to the scriptures, to give some biblical definitions of the hope we have as Christian people. Point number one. Biblical hope is always tied to the unfailing character and promise of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Here we go. Without wavering, that's the certainty part. Why? He who promised, he who promised is faithful. So we hold on to our hope because God is faithful. I want to, I'll deal with it more tonight. I'm not just talking now about me feeling that he's faithful. There's all sorts of times where I want something from God and he doesn't give it. Has anybody else ever had that happen? Put your hand up. You asked for something and did not get it. Why is that only about half? Are the rest of you just lying or incredibly dynamic spiritual people? It's the lying, isn't it? I'm not talking about the subjective feeling. We have this recorded history where he has proven himself faithful. His faithfulness extends beyond our own perceived experience of his faithfulness. We have a much less subjective measurement of the faithfulness of Almighty God. And we can can see it. We can track it through the Old Testament and the New. And so we, the text says, we hold fast our confession even and especially when It doesn't look or feel like God is being faithful to us at that moment because because we have a genuinely inspired, historically truthful record of the nature and actions of our faithful God. And so the Bible ties my hope in God to this solid peg of biblical truth. My hope is not finger crossing, it's not wishful thinking. It's not biting your lip as you sit in the stands while the field goal kicker tries to split the uprights from 50 yards. No. Biblical hope, it's rooted in two foundational realities. Here they are. First, A, it's tied to our knowledge of God's character and action as recorded in his inspired word. And let me say, especially... The true record of Jesus' death and resurrection. So God has demonstrated his love and his faithfulness. We'll talk about that more in coming weeks in this series. But let me just say this. You simply must be diving deeply and regularly into your Bible if you want to be possessed by a joyful, living Christian hope. You have to. It's anchored there. It's not just knowledge that you glean, it's hope. Second, I said there were two things. Our hope is tied to our relationship to God through a personal experience of Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. This is exactly, by the way, the way Peter describes this whole experience of being born again. A lot of people have different ideas. Here's what Peter says. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. According to his great mercy. And he doesn't say he's given us forgiveness. He has, but that's not what Peter says. What do do you link to the mercy that God reveals? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Where does it come from? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This this is so important. Peter makes a major point here. It's it's, It's a central insight to sound Christian living. This is not hope that comes from positive thinking. You may be an optimistic person without Jesus Christ. You may be the kind of person who always likes to walk on the sunny side of the street. You may have a good self-image and be generally positive to be around. You may have a good outlook on life. And now here's the important point. None of that has anything to do with biblical hope. None of it. Biblical hope is not the same as inward optimism. It's not the same as a positive outlook. It has nothing to do with self-esteem or self-confidence. Atheists can be positive. They can never possess biblical hope. Never. One of the marks, the biblical marks of the fallen mind is that it is, it is objectively the opposite of the text we just read. It is objectively without hope. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's the church now, by the way. Strangers to the covenant of promise, and here's the result. See it? Having no hope. You might be cheery, but you don't have hope. You don't have this certainty in your future without God in this world. So biblical hope for eternal life and hope for a heart pleasing to God the Father, it, that's only available to those who have taken into their own mind and heart the saving grace and spiritual life of the risen Christ. And so the Bible says, with complete accuracy outside of Christ, you are living without hope. That's you today. You may have driven to church today in a Porsche. You may have a wonderful house, and, 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 and you've got your... your your mansion on, on Lake Joe and you've got your boat and you've got your pool and you've got all your kids going to Harvard and everybody's healthy and happy and you've got, you got a wonderful marriage. You're without hope. Only you don't know it. Without hope in this world. Without Christ is without hope because it's looking at that absolutely objective, solid, eternal future and you, you don't have it without hope. Point number two, biblical hope is the fuel for both faith and holiness. We'll see how far we get. We won't finish. I want to take time that I I do not have to read like lightning those opening four texts. And so if they can scroll through them on the screen, I'm, I'm just going to barrel through them and try and point out one truth as we go. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. 10, 22, and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What I'm wanting you to see in these texts, I should have said this up front, is the way that faith and hope are linked together. He, he really can't talk about one without talking about the other. So you'll see that repeated as we read through. ten twenty two and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Romans 4. In hope. He believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations. That's Abraham. As he had been told. So shall the offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. When he considers his own body. Which was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust. Made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. So, verse 4, in hope he believed. 20, grew strong in faith. I think you can see the link between faith and hope. It's so tight, and especially in those remarks about Abraham, that it's almost impossible to distinguish between the two. It seems you can't talk about one without the other. They're like heads and tails on the same coin. That's because they're very closely related. Maybe we could could make the distinction like this. And, And even this isn't perfect. Hope is faith looking forward. Faith is hope looking backward to the record, the character, the resurrection of Christ, his death on the cross. Hope is faith looking forward. Here's the promise. Here's what's awaiting us. Here's where we're headed. Faith is hope looking backwards in the character, promise, actions of God. Now, the reason we're zeroing in on hope in this series instead of faith is I want to concentrate on this future work in this series. But, but our look at the future is, in hope is always dependent upon our understanding of God's faithfulness in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us bank on his second coming. We've already seen the work begun. It's not wishful thinking. Here's what I want to try and wrap up. I want to look at how hope fuels Both faith and holiness. How hope fuels both faith and holiness. That's where we're going now. A. Hope fuels faith by focusing life on the promised future of blessing that God has for his children. So so what what does the devil do to derail the faith of those people that I mentioned earlier and dozens of others? How does that happen? So to derail the power of my faith, that's what they're all saying. They departed from the faith. The devil's primary method is to cool my Christian hope, my passion for the future that God has prepared for me. He delights in pulling my mind and your mind. It's a gradual process. And here's where I'm going to wrap up. Up there, they're thinking I'm out of my mind. There's about 18 more points. To derail my faith, the enemy usually won't come and prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because it can't be done. But he doesn't have to do that. to to derail my faith, what he does is he pulls my mind into the myopic rather than the grand panorama of God's eternal kingdom and the kingdom perspective and where everything is going. Or think of it this way. the, The devil's primary plan is to draw my whole being This is how he wants to work in your life. This is how he wants to work in your life this week. Okay? If you forget everything else, this is how the devil wants to work in Christians this week. He wants to pull your mind exclusively to the things that are going to happen in your life in the next 30 years. He wants all your attention there. And if he can do that, He can do one of two things. He can make you grumble and complain about how unfair life is and how hard life is and you don't feel God's presence and and he let you down and he disappointed you. That's, That's Marty Sampson. If he can get you focusing on this little slice, he can make you discouraged with God And he can make you, or he can make you so absorbed in present successes that you forget about God. Either way, he's happy. He doesn't really care which way it goes. When we talk about the Christian hope and how it fuels faith, next week we'll look at how it fuels holiness. I'm just talking about how it stabilizes your faith. Remember this, God always, always calls Christian people to be big picture people. He always calls us to be big picture people. Big picture is, for a lot of us in this room, eternity is getting closer and closer. We should be thinking about it more and more. Remember what I said? If you're here and you're, and you're like 65, 70 years old, if life is a drive from here to Fairview Mall, you're already past Shepherd. you're right there and all of you sitting here thinking you're invincible because you're only 28 you're, you're, you're already at highway 7 <laughs> like we'll see you all in a little while don't think, no one's getting out of here alive so Christians are called to be big picture people in, in our giving in our thinking, in our spending, in our entertainment, in our relationships, in our involvement in the church. Live live like eternity matters. This, Satan's plan will be all week long to get you thinking about what's going to happen in your life in the next 30 years. That's where he wants all your attention, right here.